that we assemble before you, our Father in heaven, to mark the passing of one year and the beginning of another. Not just that, though, our being here marks your gift of another day of life to us. How we think about that and how we think about you and how we think about that as before you will make all the difference to every one of our coming days. So we pray, make us here today and heed. Let your word fall on no deaf ears and no hard hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to fill the sermon title in later, so let's get going. Here we are on 123-123. We're on 1231-23. How often does that happen? The last day of 1923, yes, the last day of 2023, I'm fine, and uh, then we begin the next year tomorrow. Uh, uh, it is true that tomorrow is just another mark on the calendar. It's not like gravity will change or the seasons will reverse or anything, but still, the end of a year is a good time to pause. It's a good time to reflect. It's a time to gear up for the year to come, and normally at CBC, we'll have a sermon that will, or sermons that help us gear up for the next year. This year, I'll straddle the change of the year, part one this week, and uh, I intend to conclude next Sunday. But uh, what have you done with the, the past years? Do you remember how we started 2023? It was a series of sermons on being overcomers, on having that faith that overcomes the world. Do you remember the first sermon of 2022? It was the biblical explanation for every part of our service, so that everybody, every member of this church is able now to explain why biblically we do everything we do, why it's important to start together on time. Every element of what we do has a biblical basis, and that sermon laid that out. 2017 had a kind of arresting title, What Are You Waiting For? Then <laughs> that was geared, obviously, to bring a, a scriptural poke and direction in living for the Lord. So I ask the question now, why are we here? Why are we here today? Somebody might say, well, we're here today to grow in our knowledge of God, to grow in our love for God, to deepen in our faith in God, to grow more faithful in our service of God, and we do all that by hearing the Word of God. I'd say that's a really good answer, but still I want to ask, why are we here? Why are you here today? What, what is the goal of assembling today? Is, is the goal that we might go away every week saying, well, that was interesting. Now I have more information. Now I know more things. Now I'm, I'm more biblically knowledgeable than the touchy-feely church down the street or the word faith one or the charismatic one or the seeker-sensitive one. I know a lot more things than them. I've got more knowledge and information than I. Or is our goal, are we here today existentially in this moment so that we might grow in Christ? so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit applying the Word of God to all of our heart, all of our life. Well, that's why we're supposed to be here. Now, I can answer that question very simply because it's, it's actually straight up spelled out in the Word of God. I mean, there are verses that literally say what I as a pastor am supposed to do. I was uh, getting a ride this week. My car was in the shop for an uh, oil change, and the lady who drove me back was telling me about her church and how disappointing her, her lady pastor was of that church. Not disappointing because she was a lady pastor, but she wasn't inspiring like she thought that a pastor should be uplifting. So I asked her where she got her ideas about what a pastor should do. 
And I asked her if she knew that there were books in the Bible literally titled the pastoral epistles that spelled out what a pastor was supposed to do. She did not. So I recommended that she might want to read those books. It'd be helpful in knowing what a pastor is supposed to do in a Christian church. Well, my first verse would not come from one of the pastoral epistles, but Ephesians 4.12. Very straight up says what my job is. To equip the saints, what? For the work of service. Not for a working theory of service, but to equip for the work of service. And then 2 Timothy 4.2 tells more about how I do that, and it says simply preach the word, amen. But it says more, involving, in, preaching the word involves reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now, approving is telling somebody what you're doing is wrong. Rebuking is saying stop it. Exhort is saying do this instead. Now, that's, that's my job. That's not negotiable. I didn't make up what being a pastor is. The, the office existed before I stepped into it. Stepping into it, this is what one takes on oneself. So my until I die quest is to do my job more effectively. And that's what I want to do now, God helping me. Looking together, number one, Roman numeral one, at basic truths about life. Basic truths about life. And the first basic truth about life from the Bible is, it is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. And I'm sure some of you are saying, how come the first verse isn't from Genesis? Genesis blank, <laughs> Genesis blank colon one. Well, you know, I think you know that one. Everything's a gift from God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Existence is a gift of God. The universe in which God gives life is a gift from God. It's all created by God and everything in it and every end for which everything was created. But to go on to more specific scriptures, Deuteronomy 32, 39. Take a look there with me. Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible, chapter 32. Words of Moses to the nation of Israel. And in the name of God, he says in verse 39, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is none who can deliver from my hand. Now, sometimes a, a, a chest-thumping keyboard, loudmouth atheist will will talk about this death or that death and say how awful God is for allowing this or that death. And I, I, that's the point at which I'm supposed to be apologetic and try to explain God to people. Instead, what I usually say is, well, actually, God's responsible for every death. <laughs> Everyone who dies is from God. Now, the, the fuller, serv the fuller uh, framework for that is, God told our first father, eat this fruit and you will die. What did he do? He ate the fruit. Therefore, we are, are a race of people under a death penalty. We're all going to die. It's only a matter of when, where, and how. So, yes, God is in charge of that. That is not something that just happens, that God says, oh, mercy me, look at what happened. I wish I could have done something about that. No, he's God, like the verse says, there is no other, and none can deliver from his hand. Now, we, we, we see that about death, but what I want you specifically to focus on today is the same is true of life. The death of a person is a deliberate choice on the part of God, but so is the life of a person. Now, I'm going to build on that, but just notice that here very plainly. I'll read you 1 Samuel, Samuel 2, 6. 
Hannah sings, Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He puts to death. This is a God decision. Sometime I'm going to write an article about this, I think. One of the things you can, a telltale about the attitude of our generation is that you don't hear a phrase that I heard as a young man quite a bit. And that phrase is playing God. Yet almost never hear anyone say that anymore. Why? Because playing God is just another day ending in Y for us. That's what we're doing. We're playing God. We don't want to be men. We'll say we're women. You know, it just, it, we are playing God every day. That baby's inconvenient or imperfect, it dies. I mean, that, that's just what we do. We play God. But it was recognized when that was a phrase that there were things that were proper for God that were not proper for us. There's a line. And above that line are God-level decisions, and below that line are our-level decisions. And the death of a person is, is a God-level decision. And that's what the Bible teaches. Indeed, it is a God-level decision. Yahweh puts to death. Job 1.21. This is famous. You all know this well. After Job had lost family and property, what did he say? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. What does he say? Yahweh gave and Yahweh is taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. So he says this of his personal calamities, his own loss of health and of property, but he also says it of the passing of his sons and daughters. Yahweh gave him sons and daughters, Yahweh took away his sons and daughters, blessed be the name of Yahweh. It's a God decision. God decides both though. The giving is also his decision. That someone is alive is equally. We all think of it in terms of, I mean, we think of the phrase that when we say someone passes, passed away, we say, well, the Lord took him. Well, but then when someone wakes up this morning, we should also say the Lord woke him up. I mean, that's, let me look at the extremes. That, uh, that is literally true. Uh, from Travis front right to Mac back left, my left, from Osai to Jonathan, in every case, the Lord woke these people up. The Lord woke up each one of us because he decided that today we would be alive and we would be here to hear this sermon. It's equally a work of God and a decision of God. Psalm 30 verse 3 is the next. O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. So again, David sings that it was a conscious decision on God's part to keep him alive and not let him go down to the afterlife. Yahweh is why he's alive. Psalm 31.15 is next. Psalm 31.15. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who pursue me. My times are in your hands. My birth, my death, everything in between in the hands of God, under the sovereign control of God. That's one, that one is actually very comforting as well as sobering to realize that God is the program director of our lives and everything in it. But that includes the length of our lives. Psalm 68 verse 20. God is to us a God of salvation and to Yahweh the Lord belong escapes from death. 
So that I've, and I, if any of you have lived to my age or even half my age, you've doubtless escaped from death many times. I've had several diseases could have killed me. We've been in situations that could have killed you. All of that comes from God. It was God's decision. It wasn't your time yet. It was God's decision for you to be alive today. This is something I want to set down very plainly from Scripture. And finally, let's turn to James 4. Finally, for this section. James 4. I want to get a little more context than I've cited there. I've cited verse 15. I want to back up a little bit. In verse 13, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. These are all future tense things. We're going to do all these things. And James says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. (laughs) For you are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord lives, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this and that. You're planning to do all these things. You may not even be there to do them, he says. It's the Lord's decision for you to live or to not live. Because life and death equally are in the hand of God. And equally, each is a conscious case-by-case decision from God. How can God do all those things at the same time? It's in the part where I said God. (laughs) That's the answer to that question. God can and does know everything at the same time in a flash of divine insight. He never learns anything. All of this, in fact, was in place when he created the universe. You've really only got two choices for how you see God. You either see God as going along and learning with us, whether, whether he's doing that by foreseeing everything or whether he's going along just learning as things happen, or you see God as decreeing everything that would happen, knowing everything that would happen because he knows himself and he knows his decrees. The first one is a non-biblical view. The second one is the view, view of the Bible. So let's talk about some of the implications and applications of all these scriptures. Each day's life and each death is a person-by-person outworking of God's eternal decree. Each person's life and death. And so that is, the, the fact that, uh, as I went from Travis to Mac and from Jonathan to Osai, well, I guess the real back is, is Laura and Gerson back there. Uh, each person, each of us here, the fact that we woke up was an individual case-by-case decision that we would wake up. So think about it. As I said, if someone passes, we say the Lord took him. But equally true, we should say that when someone wakes up in the morning, the Lord woke him. Eat your decisions of God. I mentioned last last year that um, often it seems like the Christmas holiday season is is a season marked by lots of of, uh, tragedies and passings. I wonder if you held your hand up how many of us have lost loved ones in January or December. I think that most, most of our hands would probably go up. But then all the people who were alive were equally decisions of God. All of us who are alive today is equally a decision by God. So I want you to, to think about this. I want you to, we're going to build on this, but have this in place right now. I'm not here because that's just the next thing that happens as things work themselves out. I'm here by God's conscious, personal decision and decree. If he didn't want me here, I wouldn't have woken up. I woke up, 
therefore he wants me here. Now, if I closed in prayer, you'd think that wasn't a very complete sermon, and I am not going to. There's a lot more to say about that. So letter B then, specifically, new life is a gift from God. Now, when I say new life, I'm not talking about a sweet little baby. I'm talking about spiritual life. I'm talking about life in Christ. Let's look at the biblical truth and be absolutely crystal clear on this. It's simple. It's plain in Scripture. Let's make sure we hold what Scripture says. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So the first uh, verses are about the eternal existence, the deity, the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Christ. I want to look at verses 11 through 13. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So their new birth, including their decision to receive Christ, all of that was a result of God's action and not of ours. You say, well, I was born again because I, deceived, because I received Christ. So you're saying you were born again by your will. But John expressly says that's not how we're born again. We're born again by God. Yes, we receive Christ. Yes, we believe, we repent, we trust Christ. But we do that as an outworking of God saving us, not making God save us. Born of God, John says. Look at what Jesus says in chapter 17 of John's gospel. Turn there. This is the real high priestly prayer. We, we overhear Jesus speaking to his Father here. The hour is come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you've given him, there's the subset of the elect, all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. Why do I have eternal life? Because the Father elected me, gave me to Christ to give eternal life to. It is just as simple and plain as that. The Father elected countless people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, gave those people to the Son that he might give eternal life to them, and he does. Why do I have eternal life? Because the Father chose me, gave me to Christ to give eternal life to me, and he did. Colossians 2, verse 13, turn there. Colossians 2, 13, the apostle writes, And you being dead in your transgressions and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. He made me alive when I was dead. He didn't wait till I make, gave myself life. So what, what does it mean to be dead? We've talked about that from Scripture at some length. What does it mean to be dead? Well, it means that I hate God. I want nothing to do with God. I'm dead towards God. I've got no will towards God. My will is free to do everything my heart wants. And my heart hates God and wants nothing to do with God. I will never choose God from that heart. I'm dead. When does God give me life? When I get over that? No. You being dead, he made you alive. I am alive entirely by an act of the sovereign grace of God. And everything that goes with that is an outworking of God's sovereign grace. This is the plain teaching of Scripture. Turn to James chapter 1. Verse 
verse 18. So what does Jesus' half-brother have to say about it? James 1.18, he says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. By his will, he brought us forth, an exercise of his will. My new life is an outworking not of my will, but of his will. Did I will? Yes, I did, because of his will. His will is the cause. Mine is the effect. The Apostle John says that plainly. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to give you a bonus verse here at absolutely no extra cost. You see verse 11, but let's look at verse 1. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What does that mean? How do I know if someone has been born again? He believes in Jesus Christ. Which is the cause and which is the effect? Being born of God is the cause. Believing in Jesus Christ is the effect. So let's go straight to the implications and applications. Suppose I were to ask you, assuming that you are a Christian, suppose I were to ask you, why are you a Christian? Why do you have eternal life? And if your answer started with, well, because I, because I did this and that and the other thing, well, that wouldn't necessarily be wrong as far as it goes. Because I repented, because I believed in Jesus, because I took God's promise, because I came to Christ. All, all of those are true things. It's just that they don't, they're just incomplete. They don't tell the ultimate story of why are you a Christian? How do you have eternal life? The fuller answer would be because God. Amen? Because God did all these things that we just read that he does. Because God chose me and gave me to Christ to give eternal life to me. Because God gave eternal life to me while I was dead. Because God gave new birth to me. Because in an exercise of his will, he brought me forth as a first fruits among his creatures. So that's the ultimate answer. Um, do we cry out to him? Do we call on his name? Of course we do. But we've got to get the causation right or we don't give God the glory he's due. We hold back glory from God. I mean, think of a baby. So do we say, you know, that baby became alive because he cried for milk? No, we don't say that a baby becomes alive because he cries for milk. What would we say? That baby is crying for milk. What? Because he's alive. His crying for milk is a sign of his life. It's, it's a demonstration of his. It's what tells us that he's alive. And yes, I, I cry out to God. I call out on Christ. I believe in Christ. Why? Because God has given me new birth. Because God has given me that life and that life cries out back for God. So God is sovereign life giver in both realms. He's sovereign life giver in the physical realm of everybody alive, believer or unbeliever. He's the sovereign life giver in the spiritual realm of every genuine Christian. Now, Christians who flee from this biblical truth, who will not bow their knee to the glory of God as revealed in Scripture, flee towards deism. They may not go all the way, but they head in that direction. What, what's deism? Deism is the idea. It's not theism. Very different. Deism is the idea that God created everything 
in the sense of like getting it started and then he stood back and let it take its own course. God is not involved in all of the events of, of, of history and of people's lives. He's at a distance from them. But you know, if you've been going here for any time, at least from that, you know that is not what the Bible teaches. God created all things and then didn't stand back. He continues to rule all things. Psalm 115, verse 3, Yahweh is in the heaven. Everything that he wishes, he does. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Colossians 1.17, all things stand together in Christ. Now all things stand together in Christ. Hebrews 1.3, Christ carries all things by the word of his power. Yes, so God rules over all things. As, as Daniel says to Belshazzar, your life breath and your ways are in his hand. And so it is with us. Spiritually or physically, we're under the sovereign decisions of God. So not only my physical life today is a specific individual decision of God, my spiritual life today is an outworking of God's individual choice for me. I am here alive and here alive solely because God decreed it to be. For what? See, it's, that's great. How could I argue with any of that? Fine. My question is, for what? Why are you alive here? Specifically, what are you here to do? What are you going to do when you leave church? What, what, do you, what are we going to do tomorrow? What's the plan? What's the plan of our life? Why are we here? What's the purpose? What's the big purpose of, your, of our life? Now, I'm going to be real blunt about this. If your most, answer, most honest answer to the question is, what, is the real, what are you working at in your life? What are you making your life about day by day? What's the specific plan for how you choose to spend your time? If your answer to that, most honest answer were, I just don't ever think about it, that would be a good answer for a cockroach. Because cockroaches don't think about things like that. Or for an armadillo, you know, he be the one thinking about getting to the other side. Okay, heading for the other side. They don't think about these questions because they're not made in the image of God. That is part of our being made in the image of God. We were made with a specific purpose and it involved our buy-in. It requires our buy-in. It requires our understanding, choices, and involvement to fulfill God's purpose. It's a, it's a mark of God's image that we can ask those questions and that we do. And, and the world's job is to provide us with an endly, endless chain of shiny objects to keep us from thinking about those things. From endless chain of, of kitty videos and YouTube videos and articles and everything to keep us from asking that question and answering it in a biblical way. So that's what I want to work at with you uh, in the next part and in next week, Lord willing. Roman numeral, Roman numeral two, I want to talk about some basic truths about God's gifts. We've seen spiritual and physical life as a gift from God. So what are some basic truths about God's gift? Well, this is going to, you'll see it grows right out of what we've been looking at in Matthew to a degree, but just hang on. One basic truth about God's gifts is that they create obligation. Roman, uh, letter A, they create obligation. Turn, if you can, to Second Chronicles chapter 32 with me, if you would, please. Second Chronicles 32, but if you're not used to finding your way around your Bible, that's a little harder to find than some. 
Second Chronicles 32. King Hezekiah was generally a godly king, in some ways a remarkably godly king, but he was not perfect. There's only been one perfect king, and he's not on earth right now. Second Chronicles 32, verses 24 and 25. In those days, Hezekiah became sick to the point of death, and he prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh spoke to him and gave him a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Boy, there's a lot there. So now you could say that's really all of us, because all of us would be dead if God weren't keeping us alive. We, we just don't think about it much, but we would all be dead, because why? I remind you, we're all under the death penalty. It's just a matter of when and how. So we would all be dead if God were not keeping us alive. And so Hezekiah did not return to God for that, and it brought wrath on him. So what does that teach us? He should have returned to God. He, he, he should have given return for the benefit. It obligated him to receive this gift from God. Matthew Henry says, it is justly expected that those who've received mercy from God should study to make some suitable returns for the mercies they've received. And if they do not, their ingratitude will certainly be charged upon them. And what would that, how would that show in us? Well, it would show in exactly the attitude I was just talking about. I'm just alive and I don't really think about it. I don't think about why. I don't think about that I owe anything God to God because of it. It's just I didn't die. So, you know, there's no particular significance to that. Well, yes, there is. As we just saw, it was God's specific decision for you to be alive so that you could... What? Well, that's just what we're talking about. That's just exactly what we're talking about. Hezekiah didn't, and it brought God's wrath on him. Uh, Psalm 116, I'll, I'll read it to you. Psalm 116, it's that psalm that be begins, I love Yahweh because he heard my voice and my supplication. And in, in verse 12, he says, what shall I give to Yahweh in return for all his bountiful dealings with me? He knows that he should give to God in gratitude for what God gave to him. It's the opposite of Hezekiah's spirit. It's the opposite of the spirit that just wakes up every day in the rut, in the rut that gives no thought to how do I especially invest today in the grateful service of God. Uh, Luke 17, we won't look at because I, I take it you probably are all familiar with that story. Luke 17, 11 through 19. How many lepers come up to Jesus for cleansing? Ten. How many are cleansed as they go away? Ten. How many come back and say thank you? One. And does Jesus say, oh, well, that's just what I expected. I mean, after all, it's just another thing that happened. No, he said, where's the nine? How come only this foreigner, the Samaritan, came back to say thank you? It was expected that they would come back and say thank you. But they just went on because this is another thing that happened. It's just a thing God did. Like you waking up today like me waking up today. Uh, Romans 6, take a look there with me. Easy to find. Romans 6 is talking about, it's addressing the idea of, well, if I'm saved by grace, and it's all grace, and gracity, gracity, grace, then why don't I just live in sin so I'll get even more grace? And you know Paul just pours all sorts of acid over that. But look at specifically what he says in verse 13. 
In Romans 6.13, do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So that means I, at age 17, 37, 57, 87, 127, I present the parts of my body to God each day, report for duty, and see how I can use those parts that he's decided to still make alive in his service. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. God has saved me from death, raised me to life, so I should present that body to God for service. That's the the benefit, for the benefit he did me, in gratitude and faith, I should present myself for service. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that, oh, there's so much in that. that that's after the verses saying that we're saved by grace through faith and that whole package is a gift from God. It doesn't come from us, it comes from God. God entirely, obviously, duh, you just read the start of the chapter, dead in trespasses and sins. He made us alive together in Christ. So how did I make him do that? Didn't. <laughs> he did it, Paul says, out of mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. It all comes from God. So what did he do? He helped me make myself. No, 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 that's not what the verse says. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a lovely thought. That makes me feel so much better about myself. Cool, but keep reading. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He made me to do good works for him. Things that have an eternal consequence. Things that redound to his glory. He remade me. He gave me new life for that purpose. So let's talk about some of the implications and applications there. The universe is not just a shapeless, meandering mess. It's not just a, a, a succession of one thing after another, things just happening randomly. You know, no Christian should really use the word luck or chance seriously. Good luck. What's luck? Luck exists in a universe where things just happen without a cause. But nothing in this universe happens without a cause. It's just what we've been talking about. There's a sovereign God who rules over all, in all, through all. There's no chance. There's no luck. God is the universe's moral governor and ruler. His gifts have purpose and they create an obligation in some way. And so here's why I ask the question, if anybody happens to be thinking, I, don't, I just don't really see that, then my question would be, what did we learn about Jesus and Israel and the fig tree? What was the lesson of that? Jesus came to Jerusalem and, true or false, there is a certain way they should have responded to him. True or false? True. They did not. True or false? True. It brought God's judgment on them. True or false? True. They're obligated to respond in Jesus, to Jesus in a certain way. And what did he use as a, an illustration of that? The little fig tree. 
little fig tree, fig tree that had leaves on it that said, you can find fruit here. That's not great, but you can find something to eat here. And Jesus went up and there was nothing there. And he cursed it and it withered because it should have. As they should have and we should. The gift of life obligates us to live that life for God. Whether it's physical life, if you're a person who's alive but you haven't trusted Christ, well, you are, uh, you are under God's judgment for failing to come to the reason you're alive. You've not sought God in Christ. You must do that. I urge you to do that. But if you have sought God in Christ, then that is also a gift of God. God has given you that new life. What do we do with it? What do we, how could, could someone look at somebody in the world and us and see, oh, I see an obvious difference in what that guy's living for between him and that other guy and what he's living for and how he invests his time and his resources and his abilities. And the, the next thing we need to understand, it makes it even bigger. God's gifts create obligation and the obligations are comprehensive. I know that's a big word, so I'll give you plenty of time. I tried to think of a shorter word, but I didn't like any of them. <laughs> they, they all didn't say what I wanted to say. Comprehensive. They take everything in. They involve every part of us. So let's get the biblical truth. You probably have already filled in the blanks for letter A. We must love God with all we have. Deuteronomy 6, 5 Right after the statement, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Nice to know. Good, I've got that information. Uh, I'm done now. No, you're not done. Next verse is what? Deuteronomy 6, 5 You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Just kind of an interesting thing. Again, no extra charge. But that word might it's really just, it's the Hebrew word that means very. <laughs> it's the word that's used in Genesis 121 where God looks at everything and sees that it was very good, ma'od. And so we're to love God with all our ma'od. And the way I kind of think of it is all your heart, all your soul, and everything that's left, <laughs> everything else. Now, all of us goes into the love of God. And you can't read the Old Testament and think, ah, yes. What he means is having fond feelings of God while I live just like all the other nations. That's not loving God. And in the Bible, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not just have a high opinion or respect, but keep my commandments. Uh, turn to Matthew 22 to underscore this. Matthew 22, verses 36 and 37. So Jesus is being quizzed here by a scholar of the law, and he asks him which is the great commandment in the law. They thought there were some 613 commandments, which one was the central commandment. And Jesus doesn't actually go to one of the Ten Commandments expressly. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He goes right to Deuteronomy 6.5. We must love God with all we have. The Old Testament says that to Israel. The New Testament says that to us Christians as well. And so an outworking of that is, letter B, we must live for God with all that we have. 
We must live for God with all that we have. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And here, Paul, you know, Corinthians were famous for their immorality, for their sexual immorality, uh, so that the word Corinthiadzestai meant to live in a profligate, immoral way, to act like a Corinthian was to live in an immoral way. And so there was danger that somebody might be a Christian and think he should just live like all the other Corinthians live. Just go see prostitutes like all the others do. No big deal. Big deal, Paul says. How does, why is it a big deal? And he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Why? What's the big deal? Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is, he obviously means physical body, is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So the act of Christ in purchasing a specific people for himself on the cross the price he paid to redeem every one of the elect has an implication on the choices I make with my life. First, I look at my body and say it belongs to him. Secondly, I make choices as to how I use that body with a thought to him, to glorify him, to bring glory to him. So now let's talk about implications and applications. It works out in practical service for God and his people. It works out in practical service for God and his people. And now, let's go back and fill in the title of the sermon. The title of the sermon is, Live for God Until You Die. <laughs> and the sermon lead pretty well up to that. Live for God until you die. And what age does that peter out? 65, retirement? Add another 10 years just to be super pious? Another 20 years, 30 years? No, I think it's fairly plain. Live for God until you die. Why? Well, because how much of my life is a gift of God? Every day. Every day, whether he gives me 10 years or 100 years, every day is a gift from God. And how much of that gift obligates me before God to serve him? Every day. Every day. So this is all over the Bible. This is all over the Bible. Think of Ephesians. It's real simple, right? Well, in fact, turn there with me. Turn to, turn to Ephesians. So chapters 1 to 3 are, you might say, very doctrinal, very theological. I mean, uh, mercy in, in verse, verses 3 and 4 and 5, he gets into election and predestination. He talks about redemption. He talks about uh, uh, resurrection, spiritual resurrection, regeneration. He talks about God's eternal purpose. I mean, this is just rich, rich chapters full of golden truth. And where does he go with all of it? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore. Oh, so now, don't read any further. Therefore, what does therefore do? Therefore signals, I'm about to make application of everything I just said. So what is the outworking of all this glorious truth about election and predestination and everything? Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, ooh, there he is still in chains, exhort you, oh, that's you and me, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. All that truth results in a worthy walk, 
a walk that glorifies God. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Wait a minute, bearing with one another? I kind of was thinking that I would be doing this at home looking at my computer screen. Or at home watching a service on the screen. Let me make very clear, watching a church service is not going to church. But I thought I could do this at home. Where does the, what's this one another? Well, you've got to have relations close enough to where you've got to put up with people. Because that's what the word means, bearing, bearing with one another. How are you bearing with people who you don't know? You're not. How are you having relations of patience and grace with people whose names you don't even know because you, you do everything you can to make sure you don't actually know these people? Well, you don't. So Paul's assumption is that with all this wonderful truth, we get involved in a church body where we know other people and have to show, well, humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm in church. I'm in church. He's expecting that I do all this in a church fellowship. Yeah, sure enough, one body, one spirit. And then he goes on, talks about this section that I alluded to earlier, that the gift of pastor teacher is to equip all the saints in the church for the work of service, that the church might grow because of everybody serving. Look at verse, verse 16, the whole body, that is the local church, the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Every one of them given physical life, every one of them given spiritual life, obligated by that gift of sovereign grace to serve God in the local church, building that local church up. Simple, plain scripture. Romans is the same way. I mean, turn back to Romans. Romans, goodness, this is, I mean, this is a magnum opus. This is Paul's magnum opus. It's his greatest work. And the first 11 chapters are all about the gospel and the, the meaning and defense of the gospel, our need for the gospel, the meaning of the gospel, the defense of the gospel. I mean, if this is the gospel, then why did Israel, God's people, not believe? Chapters 9 through 11 answers that question. I mean, it's all there. I mean, this is a course in theology here, verses uh, chapters 1 through 11. And so where does he go in chapter 12? There's a shift. Where does he go? Chapter 12, verse 1, oh, there's that word again. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God. All these mercies I've been teaching you about for the last 11 chapters, issues in this, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't think too highly of yourself. But what does he say? Verse 5, well, start with 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then he goes on for the rest of the book to say, so use your gifts to serve one another in your local church, to serve other people. It's the same pattern, all this glorious truth and the living out of it is to glorify God by loving and serving in the local church. So what's the upshot when we say that we're going to show love for God? Well, love is not primarily feelings. It's not primarily emotions. They show themselves in, in deeds. So 
Here's your assignment. We're going to come up to a fairly abrupt end, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll develop this. So please, please be sure to be here, and we'll review, and then we'll come to how this works out. But here's the things to think about. Here's the assignment. Like, like Jesus told the Pharisees to go look up the verse about mercy. I'm giving you a few things to think about. What have you been challenged to do from the Word of God over the last year, just to make it simple? Scripture you've heard taught, what does it challenge you to do? What have you seen that you needed to do something about? And then the next question is obvious. What have you done about it? And if the answer to that is nothing yet, the next question is, when are you going to do something about it? These are the things we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But the upshot of all of this is to enter the new year, not wandering into it, cringing and hoping things go well, My fingers don't cross well anymore. Hoping things go well, hoping things aren't too bad, hoping maybe we get a better president. I hope maybe we get a better president. Uh, (laughs) I always hope we get a better president. Better Congress, all those things, you know. And we'll just have to see. We'll have to see how things go. No, that's not how the Christian lives. Going into the new year saying, every day God gives me is a gift from God for a purpose. And I'm going to live every one of those days by God's grace to his glory. I've got a plan. That's the intent. That's what we mean to do together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, for its clarity and its power. We thank you how it is indeed, just like it says in your word, living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, We pray that it will indeed pierce our hearts, that these truths will grip us, fill us with hope, joy, gratitude, and purpose to live lives marked by your grace and aimed at your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.